Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Jeff Cohen, co-founder of RootsAction.org, who discusses his group's Step Aside Joe campaign that underscores the risks for democracy as an unpopular Joe Biden runs for re-election in 2024. Jamie Henn, director of Fossil Free Media, who talks about July's record-breaking global temperatures and the culpability of major oil companies that he asserts must pay for the damage they've caused. And Dr. Robert Marsh, professor of oceanography and climate at the University of Southampton in the UK, who explains the significance of a new study that predicts the collapse of a vital Atlantic Ocean current linked to the climate crisis. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Russian President Vladimir Putin will be skipping the BRIC summit meeting in South Africa in late August. The bloc, comprising Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, brings together the world's major developing nations. Putin's announcement ends a long controversy regarding his visit since charges were filed against him in March by the International Criminal Court relating to the abduction and transportation of Ukrainian children to Russia. South Africa is a signatory to the Rome Statute that established the International Criminal Court that would have obligated Pretoria to arrest Putin. South African authorities had earlier given strong hints that they would have likely not executed the arrest warrant against Putin. But the Democratic Alliance, South Africa's main opposition party, has taken the government to court in an attempt to compel it to arrest the Russian leader if he sets foot on their territory. Last month, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa led a delegation of six African leaders on a mission to Kiev and Moscow aimed at brokering a peace deal. Many impoverished African nations depend on Ukrainian and Russian grain and other agricultural imports to feed their growing populations. The U.S. and its allies are now grappling with how to avert a global food crisis following Moscow's July 17th withdrawal from the Black Sea grain deal and its subsequent attacks on Ukraine's ports and storage facilities. In late June, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency ended investigations into three of its highest-profile Title VI civil rights cases in Cancer Alley, an 85-mile corridor in Louisiana. It was a major disappointment for activists in the region's predominantly black communities. The investigation into two state agencies was facing growing resistance from state officials, and Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry sued the EPA, asserting the agency had overstepped its authority. The case hinged on the EPA's ability to intervene when state agency decisions disproportionately harm a specific group of people, regardless of whether or not that harm is intentional. But over the last few years, the Supreme Court's conservative majority has restricted the powers of federal regulators. 
One preliminary EPA report found that children at an elementary school located next to a chemical plant were exposed to the hazardous pollutant chloroprene, which the EPA has classified as a likely human carcinogen. According to the Grist online news site, Louisiana's majority black communities are exposed to at least seven times the emissions, on average, as predominantly white communities in industrial areas. A handful of right-wing extremist activists in the state of Georgia challenged the voter registrations of nearly 100,000 people. Under a new section of Georgia election law, SB 202, passed by the state's Republican legislature. While most of the challenges were rejected, the law allowed political activists to target low-income voters, predominantly in communities of color. ProPublica determined that a vast majority of the tens of thousands of challenges were submitted by just six right-wing activists. Another 12 people accounted for most of the rest. Of those challenges, roughly 11,100 were successful, at least 2,350 voters were removed from the rolls, and some 8,700 were placed in a challenged or equivalent status, which can force people to vote with a provisional ballot that election officials later adjudicate. Five of the six most prolific challengers identified by ProPublica have assisted or been assisted by right-wing organizations, some leaders of whom were involved in efforts to challenge the results of the 2020 presidential election. Atlanta voter Sarah Ketchum told ProPublica that she felt the law permitting these challenges was a type of intimidation given Georgia's history of white citizens using voter challenges to suppress the black vote. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Former twice-impeached President Donald Trump, who already faces 34 felony charges in New York in the Hush Money adult film star case and 40 federal felony counts for mishandling classified documents, was charged on August 1st with four counts in a second federal indictment for his attempt to overturn the will of voters in the 2020 presidential election that ended with a violent January 6th Capitol insurrection. Despite being the first former president to face criminal charges in U.S. history, Trump is wildly popular with Republican voters and is on track to be the GOP's 2024 presidential candidate. Although Trump and much of the Republican Party has embraced an explicitly white supremacist and anti-democratic agenda, recent polls find that President Joe Biden is in a virtual tie with the former disgraced president highlighting a lack of enthusiasm among many voters. A late-July New York Times-Siena College poll found that 50% of Democratic-leaning voters want the party to nominate someone else, as Biden's approval ratings remain low. Your reporter spoke with Jeff Cohen, founding director of the Park Center for Independent Media at Ithaca College and co-founder of RootsAction.org. Here he discusses his group's Step Aside Joe campaign, 
that underscores the risks for democracy as an unpopular Joe Biden runs for re-election and pushes for Democrats to choose a stronger 2024 presidential candidate. The Republican Party leadership and base uh, very much seems like a neo-fascist party. You know I'm a media critic and a media monitor. I watch Steve Bannon's program almost every day. I, I've been watching Fox News for about two hours this afternoon. I monitor the right wing. They are a threat. It's worse than it's been in decades. The last time we had the open white supremacist running for president was George Wallace, and he didn't get that far. Uh, but here you have that kind of ideology, that kind of phony populism, scapegoating immigrants, scapegoating people of color. You have that now in the leadership of the Republican Party and especially in the front runner, Donald Trump. Uh, so the situation is absolutely dire. And the reason we started the DontRunJoe.org campaign, which is now called StepAsideJoe.org, is we see the threat, which is that this Republican Party cannot be allowed to take the White House again. And it's our belief that Joe Biden can't win. And part of the reason he can't win is because some of the most important activists that delivered the election for Joe Biden in 2020 over Donald Trump and Roots Action was involved in Arizona, Wisconsin, and Michigan, three states that we won, you know, with a vote Trump out campaign. Uh, some of the best young activists are climate activists. And Joe Biden has gone in reverse. He's now expanding oil drilling in the Arctic, Alaska. He's expanding oil drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. He's expanding exports of liquefied natural gas. The Democratic leadership just shoved through this Mountain Valley gas pipeline for Joe Manchin, mostly in West Virginia. Uh, he's gone in reverse. And it's almost as if the Democratic Party leadership doesn't care about social justice activists anymore, doesn't care about Green New Deal activists, doesn't care about climate activists, uh, because that to, to us amounts to almost voter suppression. When you take an issue that's so important to millions of your voters and you go in reverse, you know, we have not given up. And we really believe that if there'd be enough bravery within the Democratic Party leaders and these individuals, these members of Congress that give anonymous quotes to mainstream reporters about how they fear that Joe Biden can't win. If just one of them or two of them or three of them would speak out and say what we're saying, which is Joe Biden's candidacy is very, very risky and that a, a more dynamic, more vigorous, more progressive candidate would do so much better at defeating this white supremacist, neo-fascist threat represented by the Republican Party. And we believe if Biden did step aside, immediately there would be members of Congress, senators, governors throwing their hats into the ring. There's nothing wrong with a party calling itself the Democratic Party, having a Democratic debate and having an open primary process. And as we learned back in 2020, there was an open process so many candidates for president that they couldn't fit on the same stage for debates. But at the end of that very open process, everyone, including non-Biden supporters, we all rallied behind the Democratic Party candidate and, and defeated the right wing. And that, that we believe could happen again. Jeff, we're told that this election coming up in 2024 
that democracy itself is at stake, with Trump pledging to centralize authority in the executive branch if he should win, and vengeance and retribution being the centerpiece of his second administration. Yep. Understandably, people want to rally around Biden because a Trump presidency is unthinkable. And that's, that's the rationale, as you said a moment ago. But why not rally around someone who's strong? Someone who's who's really out there fighting for us. Why not open up the process and rally around whoever wins through that process rather than having Biden imposed upon us? Again, the polls are consistent. Democrats want a different candidate. And yet you have the Democratic Party leadership and the Democratic National Committee saying, no, you're getting Joe Biden and there's no alternative to Biden. Mm. That's not the way to defeat the right wing. Everything I've said to you, Scott, is how do we prevent Trump from taking office again in January 2025? That's uppermost in our minds. And we believe the data, I could quote you poll after poll after poll, that shows that Biden could be in deep trouble, even with this whacked out, fanatical, narcissistic, neo-fascist Donald Trump as the alternative. We think we have two months, maybe three at the most, to convince Biden to step aside and to open up the primary process. There are stronger leaders ready to go if Biden were to step aside. And frankly, we thought he should have stepped aside about six months ago. And it's not division that we're about. We're about let's defeat the GOP in November 2024. That was author and activist Jeff Cohen co-founder of the online activist group, RootsAction.org. Learn more about the Step Aside Joe campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. July 2023 was the hottest month ever recorded globally by as much as 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit and possibly the warmest in 120,000 years, according to climate scientists. Ocean temperatures, too, have reached an all-time high. Waters off the Florida coast were recorded at 100 degrees Fahrenheit, endangering coral reefs and marine life on which humanity depends. Temperatures were 1.5 degrees warmer than pre-industrial times for a record 16 days in July, while the Paris Climate Accord aims to keep the 20- or 30-year global temperature average to 1.5 degrees. Speaking to reporters from the United Nations headquarters in New York last week, Secretary General Antonio Guterres said that the era of global warming has ended and the era of global boiling has arrived. Guterres admonished world leaders when he warned, no more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Your reporter spoke with Jamie Henn, a climate activist, director of Fossil Free Media, and a co-founder of 350.org. Here he talks about his recent article titled, This Killer Heat is Brought to You by Big Oil, It's Time for Fossil Fuel Giants to Pay Up, where he discusses the culpability of major oil companies in misleading the public regarding what their scientists knew about the link between fossil fuels and global warming as far back as the 1970s. I've been working on climate for nearly 15 years now, and I think that the last month has been one of the most terrifying that I've ever experienced when it comes to witnessing the climate impacts that are 
rapidly spiraling out of control. Um, and I say that as an activist, but I think you hear the same thing from many scientists who are seeing some of their predictions come true faster and harder hitting than they uh, ever feared. Um, part of that, of course, is that we are in an El Nino cycle. And so some of these impacts have been intensified because of that variation. But still, even accounting for that, people are really worried about the way that climate change is rapidly destabilizing our Earth's natural systems and that those impacts are compounding each other. I think if there's any silver lining, and it's hard to find one when so many people are suffering and so many impacts are happening quickly, it's that the world is really waking up to the fact that climate is not a distant threat for the future, but really a clear and present danger. So I think that the level of news coverage we've seen over the last month or two, the level of public awareness on this issue, and the level of public support for really trying to drive forward stronger action when it comes to addressing climate change is higher than we've seen in the past. The question is, does that translate to the type of political pressure that's going to be necessary to move a political system that has been far too slow uh, in addressing this crisis and to take on an industry um, in the fossil fuel industry that is still doing everything it can to try and slow down progress and cling um, to the incredible profits that they've made throughout their history and especially over the last year or two. Jamie, you say the fossil fuel companies should be forced to pay for the widespread damage they've caused on planet Earth. Is there a model in the lawsuits that were uh, filed against the big tobacco companies that eventually resulted in multiple lawsuits, hundreds of millions of dollars being paid to the victims and preventative health measures to protect future generations from the scourge of tobacco, emphysema, cancer, and the like? Is there anything we can learn from that, or is this a completely different situation where it's not just a public health emergency, it's, it's a planetary health emergency? I think that's exactly right. The first thing I'd say is, yes, there is a lot to learn from the story of big tobacco. First, the critical role that litigation played in winning that fight. Uh, there was always a push, just like on climate, to take local action on tobacco, to pass legislation at the city, state, and federal level. But court cases played a really important role, and the legal process played an important role. This is one of the tools we have to rein in corporate power in this country and hold people to account. The very good news, and I think the really exciting news that more people need to know about, is that there is a wave of game-changing lawsuits that are taking place across the country that are beginning to bubble up um, here in the U.S. And, and actually around the world that are taking on the fossil fuel industry from different angles. Um, and if people do some Googling after they're listening to this, you'll find great articles in The Guardian, especially has been doing a great job tracking this, as well as other news outlets. But right now, as we speak, um, over two dozen different cities and states across the United States are bringing lawsuits forward against big oil in different ways, some of them going after the industry for their greenwashing and lying to consumers about their products, others really suing for climate damages and saying, look, our city is having to pay the cost of climate impacts, and we think the industry should pay their fair share. Others, really led by Puerto Rico but expanding, are filing racketeering charges uh, that took down the mob, saying, look, these companies conspired together to try and block action to regulate their industry. That's illegal. That's a conspiracy. Um, so people are pursuing different angles. There are also, of course, young people filing cases, uh, be it at the federal level, young people saying, look, we have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that's being impinged upon by climate change. Or in some key states like Montana, where the state constitution guarantees young people um, a healthy environment. And obviously that right is being violated by the companies that are wrecking the climate. So there's a real proliferation of these cases that I think could begin to make an impact. We're going to see more of these 
over the weeks, months, years to come. And I think we're, as activists, trying to think about ways that the public can get engaged so all of us can have a stake in these different fights. Because, look, all of us have standing in this case. All of us are paying the impacts of climate change. So all of us should have a right to sort of sue big oil and take on that fight. That was Jamie Henn, a climate activist, director of Fossil Free Media, and a co-founder of 350.org. Find a link to his recent article titled, This Killer Heat is Brought to You by Big Oil. It's Time for Fossil Fuel Giants to Pay Up, and Related Analysis, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. A new peer-reviewed paper in Nature Communications sent shockwaves through those paying attention when it concluded that the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Current, or AMOC, is most likely at the beginning of collapse, a process that could take decades before it finally suddenly happens at the tipping point. The Gulf Stream that runs from the coast of Florida and up to North Carolina and then across the Atlantic is part of the AMOC. A future collapse of this vital ocean current, triggered by global warming, would have serious consequences, including dramatic rapid changes in weather patterns and climate, especially for northern Europe, but also for the Atlantic coast of the U.S. and beyond. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Dr. Robert Marsh, professor of oceanography and climate at the University of Southampton in the U.K. Although he wasn't involved in the nature study, He's an authority on AMOC and helped develop one of the computer models referenced in the study. Here, Dr. Marsh explains what the AMOC is, the impact it has on moderating climate, and what could happen if it collapses. But he cautions that nature is far more complex than simple models and statistics can properly represent, and so we should be quite uncertain of the latest prediction. He noted that around 2010, the AMOC stalled for a year which had a definite impact on the weather in adjacent countries. AMOC is uh, really an acronym for the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation. So it's in the Atlantic Ocean. Meridional means north and south. Overturning talks about movement from above, down, and then back below. And it's a circulation as uh, part of the ocean current system, all water moves and joins back together again uh, in, a, in an enormous kind of indefinite loop. The AMOC is about half of the Gulf Stream, I should say. So the Gulf Stream is a very large m- movement of water along the east seaboard of the United States, about half of which we can think of as AMOC. There's another half of the Gulf Stream which kind of goes more round and round in the subtropics. We would consider that to be a different kind of ocean circulation. So so it's a bit confusing because we sometimes hear alarmingly that the Gulf Stream is going to stop. And that's not really plausible because about half of the Gulf Stream is quite independent of the AMOC. AMOC is is, um, uh, the movement of water, not just at the surface, which is where we really see the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream is kind of sitting in the upper maybe one kilometre of the ocean, and it's really strong at the surface. So that that is the sort of well-known 
surface expression of, of the of the Gulf Stream. Um, we can see that in, in satellite images as a, as a warm ribbon of water. As I say, the, the AMOC involves also these very deep flows. The ocean's about four or five kilometers deep. So well beneath the Gulf Stream is, is a return flow, approximately the same water which went north with the Gulf Stream. As I said, not all of it, but about half of it is coming back south again several decades later. This is a global warming related concern that this thing could collapse. That's a piece of it, is that right? That's, that's correct, yes. The AMOC is, is part of that sort of suite of operating systems on planet Earth, which have been really stable for the last several thousand years. And uh, we're really pushing the limits of, of what, what the AMOC can take, basically. So one thing I wondered is there seems to be such a huge time difference in experts predicting. Some are saying as early, I think they said, was it 2025 or 2035? I mean, something really imminent. And then others were saying hundreds of years out. So what is the difference based on? Is it based on how much warmer the planet gets or something else? So we have, over the last, I'd say, 20 or 30 years, as a scientific community, gained ever more understanding of how climate is changing and also how the ocean feels that change and participates in that change. So the reason for the great uncertainty in when this might happen even if it might happen, is, I think, reflecting that ongoing but reducing uncertainty. So, so one of the reasons why this uncertainty is reducing is because literally time is going by and we are gathering very accurate information about climate change. If it really collapses, what would the impacts be? We don't really know quite how serious and far-reaching might be the consequences of a collapsed AMOC. The impacts... I think will be most keenly felt in North Europe. That in particular affects countries like Norway and, um, well, the UK, other countries around North Europe, subject to a relatively benign maritime climate. So what would happen in the absence of uh, a normal AMOC is that those countries would be subject to, I think, more extreme climate. And that could include uh, more severe winter as well as more difficult summertime conditions. So that would be droughts and floods. Now that has consequences as well for weather elsewhere. If we're getting a very different weather over here, then likewise, you can expect the weather in, in um, North America may be a bit different too. There are also consequences for the Atlantic hurricane season, which are when, when the AMOC fails, we get more heat in the tropics and that builds up to the extent that greater hurricanes and more hurricanes can form. Clearly, we need to stop the amount of warming uh, that, that is building up over time, but we need to slow down the rate of that warming because... To some extent, uh, it's the, the speed of change, which is too much for the AMOC, potentially. So if we could just slow things down a bit, we may still get to a warmer world. But if we could do it at a slower rate, it would give the AMOC an opportunity to kind of keep up with that. That was Robert Marsh, Professor of Oceanography and Climate at the University of Southampton in the UK. Learn more about predicted changes in the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Current, or AMOC, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, 
please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WESU in Middletown, Connecticut, WFMP in Louisville, Kentucky, KMXT in Kodiak, Alaska, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.